Good evening. Thank you for being here tonight. Looking forward to continuing our conversation about uh, the, the the life of Christ. And you know, I was uh, looking at how many lessons we've had. It is amazing. It looks like we've already had like twenty plus lessons over the life of Christ, and we still have a pretty good ways to go. So, as I've stated before, I, I really enjoy just taking a slow. There's so much content to cover. In Christ's life, that I think we often just overlook. We get we get a piecemeal uh, message here, a parable there, a statement here or there from one of Christ's messages. But what a thrill it's been to just kind of look through the entire life, and when we see a message like the Sermon on the Mount, taking a look at all three chapters rather than just one or two verses. So we're in John chapter seven. This is where we left off last uh, time we were together two weeks ago. Last week was our business meeting, so we did not have a Bible study uh, last Wednesday. So where John chapter 7, I had ended on verse 17 and 18, where the Jews in verse 15 had said, wow, we can't imagine, we can't believe that this man is such a great speaker. He's not learned, he hasn't been to school, he didn't learn, he didn't train under the Pharisees or the Sadducees. How can he know such things? And I had stated two weeks ago that if anyone ever had the right to brag, it was Christ. Christ is God. Christ is going to give the glory to God the Father, but that's out of choice, not because Christ himself cannot or should not be glorified. I had made the statement, I think that what Christ is trying to do here is show us how we ought to do the same. I think it's a similar idea to his baptism. Did Christ get baptized for the same reasons we get baptized? Obviously not. Our purpose for baptism is to show a picture of the decision we made in salvation, trusting in Christ, dying to sin, and being reborn into the family of God, your, your sins covered in righteousness and, and fully immersed in the righteousness of Christ. Uh, Christ has no sin. Christ had no need to be reborn. And Christ, I feel like there's probably other reasons to be baptized. He mentioned specifically at that time this needed to be done. It was the thing to do to, he said, fulfill righteousness. What does that mean, to fulfill righteousness? It essentially is a phrase that has the idea of, it was the right thing to do. doesn't mean that there was sin that had to be accomplished or, or, or dealt with through his baptism. And so, I think him being baptized was a picture, a reminder, an encouragement that if Christ is getting baptized, how much more should we be getting baptized? And so, similar here, in my opinion, if when Christ is commended for the wisdom that he had, and the ability to speak truth so clearly, if he points to God, and he says in verse uh, 16, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me, God the Father, then I ended with this idea of how, how unfortunate, and that's putting it lightly, how shameful that so many spiritual leaders who are basically just taking the truth that God has provided for us for thousands of years and giving it to God's people, and then when God's people's lives are changed and affected and they're moved and, and they start finding success, I think it is the human nature to point to who they see. That's the person that spoke the truth. And yet the spiritual thing to do is say, no, no, you got it wrong. I'm just giving you what was given to me. That's what Christ says here. I'm giving you what was given to me. But too many teachers, too many spiritual leaders say, yeah, I know, I'm pretty amazing, right? You're, you are sure lucky to have me. And that is not the heart of Christ. So that's where we ended. Let's move on now. This is, by the way, Christ, to get some background here, Christ is at the, the a main festival in Jerusalem. This is the festival in John chapter 7 
And uh, the first part was brothers come to him and say, hey, if you really were someone important, you wouldn't be hiding here in Galilee. You'd go down to Jerusalem and state to everyone who you are. His brothers are being facetious because Jesus has already done that in Jerusalem, in Samaria, in Galilee. Jesus has not been hiding from anyone. His brothers, I think, are bitter. They're jealous. Obviously, there's some issues, emotional strain, relationship strain going on. And they're not speaking truth to Christ. Christ's response was, it's not my time to go down there yet. And then his brothers do leave in uh, verse number, um, let's see here, verse number 10. But when his brethren were gone up, they left. Then went he also up unto the feast after them. And we spent some time looking at other chapters, other books of what took place while Christ was traveling down. That was when he sent out the 70 on, on his way down to Jerusalem. Some other things took place, some miracles. Then he arrives in Jerusalem at the festival. His brothers are already there. A lot of people are already there. And Christ uh, comes into the festival, it says, uh, kind of as it were in secret in verse 10. He, he enters it in secret, not to be sneaky. He just doesn't make a big deal out of it. I said in contrast to his final arrival in Jerusalem in that final week where people are singing Hosanna and, and everyone's pointing and talking about Christ. This is, this is the opposite of that scenario. Well, eventually people say, wow, this is Christ, right? This is the one everyone's talking about. And so then Christ starts to preach at that time. So that's where we are picking up verse 20. The people answered and said, Thou hast a devil who goeth about to kill thee. So if you see in verses 18 and 19, Jesus, as he's speaking, is saying, Look, the things that I speak are true. The things that I speak are of God. Verse 18, He that speaks of himself seeks his own glory. But he that seeketh his glory that sent him the same is true. Verse 19, did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keep the law? Why go you about to kill me? So you, you that claim that you love the law, then why don't you follow it? Now, we are not Jews. We are not bound by the Old Testament law. But I think a similar question could be asked of us. Those of us who claim to love Christ, why don't we follow him? Those of us who say that we love God's word, why don't we obey it? Because didn't Christ himself in another text say, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. That is the proper response to love. And Christ is saying here, you Jews claim to love, know, and love the law, yet you don't follow it. I think Christ could say to his church today, you claim to love and know my word, and yet don't follow it. You claim to love and know me, and yet don't follow me. Oh, but we do, God. We do follow you. We go to church services. We go to Bible studies. And the Jews would say the same. Ha! What do you know? We follow the law of Moses. On the Sabbath day, you're not even allowed to spit on the ground. I mean, if that's not following the law of Moses, I don't know what is. We're very zealous regarding the law of Moses. In another text, Christ clarifies, no, you actually follow traditions and claim them to be the law of Moses. You don't, you don't literally follow what I gave you, what God the Father gave you. You follow what you were given by men, by your own leaders, claiming it was of God. And that is the same problem in a lot of churches. Oh, we do go to church. We do follow God. No, no, you're actually following people. And those people are claiming to be of God, and you're okay with that. And you're justifying, you're saying, by following this person, I am following God. But that's not how it works. We follow God. And as we follow God, we are hopefully surrounded by those who are also following God. The problem with following people is when those people go astray, you follow them astray. 
But when you follow God, those people go astray, and you look at them and say, where are you going? <laughs> like, I'm following God. I'm going to keep going, right? It's the illustration of someone going on a hike. If you've never been on the hike before, of course, you're going to ask directions. You're going to follow a map, or you're going to have a guide. The guide, hopefully, is someone who's been there before. If you're following the guide, if the guide gets lost, so are you. You say, well, what, do you, what is the other option? If, if you want to get to the end of the trail and you don't want to get lost from the guide, what are you left with? Well, I've already stated, you follow the map. Or you've been there and know where you're going. Well, for those of us who haven't been down paths God is taking us now, you don't have to follow me down that path and hope I'll get you to the end. God's giving you a map. It's the Bible. And if you follow this map, whether I take you there correctly or not, take shortcuts or not, stay on the right path or not, the Bible is your map. Follow this. And by following this, you are following Christ. Will there be some naturally who will follow you? Yes, they will. They don't know any better. Are there some naturally who follow me? Yes, they are. They don't know any better. The danger is when you and I don't correct that. The danger is when people follow us because they don't know there is a map. They don't know how to follow the map. It's easier just to follow you than the map. The danger is for us to get big heads and say, wow, look at all these people following me. I mean, I'm, I'm the map for them. Like, I'm pretty important. That's when we're stepping onto thin ice. And you are likely going to lead those people astray because you are only human. The desire for me with our students, the desire for me with the Men and women of Marion Hills is, if you're going to follow me, it better only be for a short time. And in that short time, my goal is to direct you to this. So you don't need to follow me anymore. I don't want a string of followers. I want a string of fellow servants who follow Christ with me. So he says, you guys are trying to kill me. That's the final statement he makes in this little small uh, uh, accusation. The people say, you're crazy. You're, you're demon-possessed. You're a child of the devil. No one here is trying to kill you. Now... These people have to be the religious leaders saying this. Why do I say that? Because look at verse 25. We're going to jump down. I will look at the other verses between these. But verse 25 said, Then some of them in Jerusalem, is not this he whom they seek to kill? So Jesus knew they were trying to kill him. The crowds knew. At least some in the crowds knew they, they were trying to kill him. Who's the they? Well, the they are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the people, the religious leaders, who don't like the idea of spiritual competition. They don't like the idea that the people might love Christ more than them. Well, imagine that. That someone might actually love God more than you. What a crime, right? Well, obviously, the Pharisees would say, well, he's not God. Well, what's keeping them from seeing Jesus as God? When literally he's right in front of their eyes. When the people themselves state, we're going to see later in this chapter, when the people themselves state, how can he be anything but the Messiah? He does miracles. No one but the Messiah could be, I mean, no one but the Messiah could do these miracles. We're going to see that later. How could the Pharisees miss what is so obvious to the common man, the unlearned man, the man and the woman who actually doesn't know truth like the Pharisees, who doesn't know scripture like the Pharisees? How could the spiritual leaders miss that? Pride. They're so focused on followers. They're not really paying attention to what actually is true anymore. They're paying attention to what they want people to believe is true. So they ignore Christ's deity, claim he's of the devil, and want to kill him because he's stealing their popularity. Verse 21. Jesus answered, 
I have done one work, and ye all marvel. Moses, therefore, gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are ye angry at me, because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath? Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Now, uh, I have a phrase that I like to use here at Mid-State Christian Academy with our students. It's called critical thinking. I say it so often. I use it so often in math class, in Bible class. I talk about it whenever I can. It has literally become a catchphrase, jokingly used by the students on a daily basis on, in some of the classes. I'll, I'll walk into class, and one of the students is walking through the chairs, and they trip on the chair, and the other students say, oh, are you using critical thinking? Like, I'm walk around the chair, don't run into it, right? And I think, that's great. I mean, they can joke about critical thinking all they want. They're actually saying it over and over again, so it's in their heads. But that is such an important thing for humanity. Critical thinking, of course, is the idea of not using emotions to uh, come to conclusions, but using truth. A young girl in our school recently asked, because it's said all the time, it's always on their minds, whether jokingly or in earnest when I'm speaking or someone else. And this is a, a, a high school girl said, Pastor Russ, well, how can you make sure you have critical thinking? She said, what keeps you from critical thinking? And I said, all right. The biggest enemy, I said, there's two enemies of critical thinking, and I said this to her, but it was in class, so the whole class is listening. They got silent, and they wanted to hear what I had to say, and I said to this young high school girl, this is just this, this last week, I said, there's two enemies of critical thinking. One is your emotions. I said, it's not that we should be emotionless without emotion. I said, but letting your emotions control your decisions, that is the enemy of critical thinking. I said, the second one is ignorance. See, because critical thinking requires truth. It requires knowledge with which to think on. If you don't have that truth or that knowledge, you know, you can claim critical thinking all day, but you have no recipe with which to make the cake, right? And so um, I could see that she was processing that, and it sunk in her head. And that is basically what Christ is saying here. He says, judge righteous judgment. He's saying, think. Think before you speak and evaluate the truth. And Christ is actually leading them to that truth in uh, verses 22 through 24. When he's using Moses, he's saying, you have a problem with me healing on the Sabbath day. You're not thinking critically. You're not using the brain that you were given because on one side of the argument you say, if a man needs to be circumcised, let him be circumcised on the Sabbath because the Sabbath is not as important as this man's fulfillment of his responsibility to be circumcised. If he was newly converted to Judaism, or if it's a young boy, and his day of circumcision fell on the Sabbath day, he would be circumcised on the Sabbath. Christ says, you're okay with that. But you're not okay with me healing someone on the Sabbath. He says, judge righteous judgment. Where's your critical thinking, guys? You know, it's almost pointless to hold what I would refer to as an argument, they may call it conversation or debate, with most people these days. Because most people, and this is Christians, not just the unsaved, this is not just one political, um, uh, someone who's on a political side over the other person on a political side, or the political in-between. It's just human. it has become humanity. I'm seeing so common that it is not a discussion, it is not a debate of ideas and truth and sources of truth, or sources of ideas. It is a debate of emotions, of opinions. Even when you listen to what should be polished men and women, on a debate stage, 
where literally they are vying for the votes of millions of people. On the federal side, tens of millions, right? And they're still not debating. They're just trying to yell louder and see whose emotions stick more with the voter. There is not a debate of truth or ideas. And then that obviously bothers Christ, and it bothers me, and I think that we as Christians should be bothered by that as well. Especially when we find it in our own hearts. That when we judge people based off of how we feel about something. Well, I don't know that I feel right about that. Uh, I don't really care overly much how you feel about it. Show me in God's word where it's a problem. It's not that I won't make some adjustments for people because of how they feel. I, I love them. I love people. And so if I can make some adjustments, reasonable, even unreasonable adjustments, for the end game of helping them get to the next step, I will do so. But I'm not going to adjust just for the sake of someone's offense. Now, the other week, we had Spirit Week. And during Spirit Week, we had a day where students were, were encouraged to dress up international, to dress up as, as um, in some um, uh, clothing that would represent a nation. Whether your ancestors come from there directly, indirectly, or it's just you like that clothing and want to represent a nation, you could dress internationally. Uh, this was a common thing up until maybe 10 years ago, where now it is called cultural appropriation. And basically, to dress up in any way that represents any culture other than your own, you are appropriation. You are stealing their identity. Now, it's interesting. I find that the people who yell loudest about this are usually um, people who actually have no heritage. They're the, they're the, you know, what I would call the, a little bit of everything, right? They're the ones that scream the loudest. I'm not saying. Other people don't have a problem with it. I recognize it can be across the board that, that countries and nations can have a problem. I, in my limited experience, it seems that a lot of nations encourage the use of their garb and their look. And my wife and I went to the Bahamas, and women are literally saying, let us, to your wife, let us braid your hair. Like, we want to do it, right? Okay, of course, they want to get paid, right? You didn't pay to do it. But no one was screaming cultural appropriation in the Bahamas when there was so many white girls of all ages getting their hair in, in braids, right? That was accepted. And these are the people you think that would be most offended, the ones from that culture. But no, it was, this is great, it, it's beautiful, and if you want to look like this too, we'd love to help you. But it's the people who have no really ancestry who scream the loudest about this. So, we had a girl come to me in the office. And she said, Pastor Russ, I don't like international things. I'm not going to tell you the girl's name. She doesn't go to this church. But I said, so tell me why you don't like it. She said, it's wrong. I said, okay. Tell me why it's wrong. She said, I don't really know why. I said, well, I appreciate your courage in coming to me. I know it must have been hard for you. By, she's by herself. Usually they come in droves. Usually if they want to say something like this, five or six of them, I don't know, you know, uh, protection numbers, you know, and like they're afraid I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something. I don't know. They're usually like five or six in my office. This girl by herself. So I said, look, I really appreciate the courage it must have taken for you to tell me this. And I said, I understand that you are offended. I understand why you are offended, but I'm telling you that you don't have a good reason to be offended. And I said, if you want to come back to me, if you have a solid reason of why it's wrong, and you want to come back to me, I'm here, and you can, you can talk to me anytime. She never did. I ended the conversation with this. 
It is not my responsibility to fix this school so that every student's offense is gone. I said, if I did that, we'd be changing things daily. And I, I, I don't feel like I need to. So I said, if it's wrong, then I will most seriously um, think on it and change it if I discover that it's wrong. But if you just feel offended and you don't even know why, I'm not going to change anything. And that was where the conversation ended. Now, some listening online may have reasons for why you think it's wrong. Some in, the, in this room may think you have reasons for why you think it's wrong. I would challenge you, is it a feeling, or can you actually point to an absolute truth of why this particular case of students dressing up in pretty clothes of other countries would be wrong? And yet, you couldn't have this calm conversation with those people. They'd already be screaming at you. In, in most schools, most teachers, most students would have been at a screaming level long before I got to the finish of this conversation. We as Christians cannot be one of them. You say, well, Pastor Us, we're not. We are calmly listening to you, and we are not debating you. Yeah, because you probably agree with me, right? It's easy to be silent and to be calm when you agree. But how do you do when the world attacks your belief? How do you do when the world attacks your traditions, your philosophy? Can you be so calm then? And can you use critical thinking then? Can you use logic and point to truth to say, this is why I believe the way I do, and although I feel this way, my feelings are not what's driving me. My feelings are just part of what's going on. This is the reason why. Judge righteous judgment. I'll end with this. If you are applying a particular set of laws of what should and should not be done, but only to certain circumstances, then you're not judging judge the righteous judgment. Meaning, if your standards only apply to a certain group of people, then you probably don't have a good standard. If your standards only apply to people not like you, or people that are like you, or people over here, or people over there, but when it's applied in a different way, oh, well, it doesn't matter then. It doesn't count then. Well, then you probably need to change your standard. That's, the issue is probably your standard, not the actual circumstance. So Jesus, uh, in verse 25, then said some of them, is not he, he the one that we want to kill, right? And, and they're saying in verse 26, here he is, and the rulers know that he's here. Why aren't they arresting him and killing him like they have been saying they would do? So obviously the rulers have been saying, so, you know, when Christ is up in Galilee, up, you know, remember, Galilee, Samaria, Judah, right? He's now in Judah, in Jerusalem. So when he was up in Galilee, and he wasn't in Jerusalem, I have no doubt. The leaders, as they're speaking on, in the synagogues and, and talking in small groups, they're saying, if that Jesus ever comes back here, we're going to arrest him, or we're going to kill him, and he doesn't deserve to step foot in this town again. Everyone's like, yeah, you know, don't let him come back, right? Yeah, getting the mobs all riled up. And then he's there, and everyone steps into the shadows, and the crowds are like, where'd they all go? Like the ones that wanted to kill him. He's here now. He's in the open. He's publicly speaking, and they're not doing anything about it. Verse 27. Howbeit we know this man whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. Okay, so this is the crowds kind of speaking. And they're saying, right, so Jesus claims to be Christ. The problem is, they say, in verse 27, the problem is, we know where this man came from. Where did he come from? Well, in their opinion, he came from Nazareth. They said, we know where he's coming from. He came from Nazareth. And they said, isn't it true that uh, the prophets of old told us you won't know the origin story of the Messiah. Like, he'll just appear out of nowhere. And, and, and since we know the origin story of Jesus, well, he can't be the Messiah because the prophets told us you wouldn't know where he's from. Well, there's a couple of problems with that. The first problem is 
They think they know where he's from. They claim Nazareth. And we notice even later at the end of the chapter, they mention specifically Galilee, which is where Nazareth is at. And they say, has a prophet ever come from Galilee? Has, has the Bible ever said the Messiah would come from Galilee? It has never said that. So they think it's Nazareth. That's the first problem. The second problem is the Old Testament never claimed the Messiah's origins would be unknown, ever. In fact, on the contrary, the Old Testament claimed he would come from Bethlehem. His origin was given in the Old Testament through the prophets. So these people are saying he can't be the Christ because we know where he's from. We know this man. We won't know the Messiah. They have been given the wrong information and have come to a conclusion with a false premise, with a false start. It's really hard to make the right decision when you have the wrong information. That's in relationships. That's in jobs. When you are overseeing people, supervisory. That's in, in classes when you are dealing with student issues. And yet, how many of us, as soon as something happens, we just want to react right away. Like, it bothers us. We've got to do something. We, it, it makes us all, you know, steamy inside. We've got to act on this because I can't go home with this undone, untouched. I can't go home and leave this back at the workplace or leave this in the classroom. So I've got to act right now. Detention. Suspension. Expulsion. You're fired. You're let go. You lose your position. Our friendship is over. Whatever it might look like, in whatever relationship, in whatever circumstance, we've got to act quickly. There's a big problem with that. First of all, you're very likely reacting. You claim, well, I'm just acting quickly. I'm nipping in the butt. No, you are reacting. You are reacting emotionally. And as I stated, emotions are the biggest enemy, one of the two biggest enemies of critical thinking. You know, the second one is ignorance. And if you're reacting immediately after something happened, then I can guarantee you, you don't have all the information. When I was young and dumb, I did this all the time and justified it. Because I thought, quick thinking, quick action, eliminate problem, move on quickly. <laughs> Everything was quick for me when I was young. Bothered me to see those who are older than me take a step back and not act quickly. Literally bothered me. Now I'm old. Now I'm 39. And um, I have learned the wisdom of not reacting immediately after a problem. And now I actually go home, go to bed with the problem un, undone, with the problem still chaotic, with the problem still resting, um, unfinished, in my head and on my shoulders. It, unless the problem is so massive, it has to be dealt with that day. Nine times out of ten, if it can wait a day, I almost always try to give it at least one why? Because I'm so very grateful that I don't have to regret my response as much as I had to regret my reaction when I was younger. Again, whether in relationships and friendships, whether as a, as a principal, pastor, teacher, as husband, a boss, it didn't matter. I regretted my reactions. Not every time. Sometimes my instinct was right. Sometimes my reaction nailed it, and it actually was the right thing, but, you know, not as often as I would have liked. All too often my reactions I regretted. Said things I should not have. 
said things, I said things not as good as I could have said them. And sometimes literally had to change my decision because after I got more information, I realized I was acting on the wrong premise. I didn't even have all the facts with which to make a decision. And I had to apologize to students, sorry for giving you a detention. Apologize to parents, sorry for you know, um, addressing your student in this manner. They actually come to find out were guiltless. Sorry for that. And I've learned when you can respond with information, think critically on what is true, you're more likely to come to the right response. These people don't have the right information. They have ignorance regarding the prophecies of the Messiah. But they don't think they're ignorant. They think that it's a real thing that the prophets of Old Testament didn't give enough information about Christ. Well, they think that either because they were told it or because they didn't take the time to find out themselves. They didn't do their own research. And so they said, ah, he can't be the Christ because we know where he's from. You know, a lot of people do that all the time. Don't be one of them. Gather as much information as you can. And by the way, the bigger the decision the more information you need to make it. Not the other way around. The bigger the decision, the more information you need. Do your research. Investigate. I was speaking with Pastor John, uh, actually, uh, some months ago, and, and we, as we were kind of preparing for this year, he said, you know, Russ, I'm coming to realize, like, administration is a lot of investigative work. Like, you're just, you're just like a detective. I said, you got it, John, that is so true. You really have to be an investigator. If you're going to be a boss, if you're going to be an administrator, you have to have the instinct of, i got to get the information in the right way to get it so that the right decision can be made afterwards. All right, verse 28. Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, You know both me, you both know me, and you know whence I am, and I am not come of myself. But he that has sent me is true, but whom ye know not. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. You know what's interesting here? Christ doesn't debate their false information. He obviously must know that this is a mob crowd speaking and saying things. And it's not like he can talk to one person like Nicodemus and hold a valid conversation. This is speaking to a crowd. As a crowd is saying things and murmuring, he has to just choose how he's going to respond. And so he chooses to not say, you guys are wrong about the prophets, okay? The prophets said I've come from Bethlehem, I'm from Bethlehem, all right? No, he chooses not to do that. He just basically says, look, you know me, I know where I'm from, and you have to basically decide either to accept that or not. Now, we're told that they sought him. Who's they? The Pharisees. They sought him. In fact, uh, we see here that they sent, in verse 32, officers to arrest him. The Pharisees had what you might call temple guards. And they sent these guys. These temple guards might even have been armed with a sword or a spear or some kind of weapon. And so they send them into the crowds to get Jesus, arrest him, and bring him back. Except the officers go out, they hear Jesus, and they come back empty-handed. Why do the officers come back empty-handed? Well, if you turn to verse uh, 44... And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto him, the Pharisees said unto the officers, Why have ye not brought him? We sent you out for a job, one job, where's Christ? Where's Jesus? Well, verse 46, never man spake like this guy. Like, he is, you gotta listen to him, he is something to behold. Have you heard him? Like, wow! You know, I know we were supposed to arrest him, but we just couldn't, we didn't have it in us. To arrest him after hearing him speak. The Pharisees are pretty upset. 
What's their response? They say in verse um, 47, they answered them, the Pharisees. That doesn't mean the officers answering the Pharisees. It means the Pharisees are answering the officers. And they say, are you also deceived? What, are you crazy? You serious? Has he tricked you as well? In verse 48, have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? Oh, that's a great source of truth right there. That's a great standard. You know he can't be the Messiah because we said he's not the Messiah. Case closed. Why are we still talking about this? Stop thinking critically and just listen to us. None of us here believe he is the Messiah. That should be enough for you. Don't pay attention to what you hear. Listen to us. Don't pay attention to what you see. Look at us. So many religions, even some evangelical, have a similar problem. Why are we talking about this? You heard me preach it from the pulpit. You must know that it's true. I told you that it was. I mean, the deacons agree with me. What more do you want? Do you really need any more truth? than the fact that I and three other men in this church have come to the same conclusion? Like, everyone just needs to accept it now. Stop relying on your own ears. You're not smart enough for that. Come on, we both know you're kind of dumb. You know, I'm smart. I'll think for the both of us. It's okay. I'll take care of you. Whether it's politically, spiritually, relationally, in relationships, spouses to each other, parents, children. Stop thinking for yourself. Just listen to me. We both know that you're not fill in the blank. You're not a doctor. You never went to college. You didn't even finish high school. We both know you're not like, you know, really bright. So listen to me. I'll take you through. I'll get you to where you need to be. Just follow me. What a shame. Leaders should not be looking for followers. Leaders should be looking to train leaders who then go about training more leaders. Because again, inevitably, there will be people that follow. But your goal is not to keep them as followers. Your goal is help them to take the next step to be leaders themselves. That's in some form or fashion. Outright strong leaders, or maybe passive leaders, which are fine too, the world needs those as well. The world doesn't need a bunch of strong leaders. We'd all be at war all the time if that was the case, right? So we need some kind of laid back leaders too, and those are okay. But let's look to train leaders not look to grow followers. These Pharisees obviously only want followers. How dare you think for yourself? Well, we were actually there. I mean, we actually heard them with our own ears. You can't trust your ears. You're not Pharisees. You guys didn't learn the scripture like we did. So we're telling you, you're deceived. Now say it back. We're deceived. That's right. You're deceived. Now next time we give you a job, do it. Now, here's where it gets interesting. What did they say? They said, you know it's not true because none of the Pharisees here believe he's the Messiah. Guess who's with them? Nicodemus. Recognize that name? Good old Nicodemus. Came to Christ at night, asked questions about being born again. A little confused because he thought Christ meant he had to be born from his mother's womb twice. And Nicodemus didn't like the image that gave him in his head and so he struggled with that. And Christ said, you're not getting it, Nicodemus. It's a spiritual rebirth, bud. Not a physical one, alright? You only have to be born physically one time. And so he has that conversation. We don't know what Nicodemus decided that night, but I will tell you what we know what Nicodemus does at the end of the Gospels. When Christ dies, Nicodemus is part of getting him off the cross 
and into the tomb. It seems to me that Nicodemus did have some kind of um, acceptance of who Christ was. It seems. Like, we don't know that for sure. Unfortunately, Nicodemus doesn't seem to have much of a backbone. It seems like he has a man of, of, he's a man of morals, but not a man of high moral fiber in the sense of willing to really stand up for those morals. Like, he has opinions, strong opinions, but he's not going to stake them publicly if it means he gets in trouble, which is why he went to Christ at night. And which is why, when these Pharisees say in uh, these verses, none of the Pharisees believe, in verse 48, verse 450, but Nicodemus saith unto them, he that came to Jesus by night, verse 51, doth our law judge any man before it hear him, and know what he doeth. So Nicodemus is kind of trying to like, well, I mean, guys, come on, let's give him the benefit of the bad doubt, you know? We can't judge him here if he's not before us. If you're going to judge him, we've got to bring him in. The officers didn't do that, so, you know, what are we doing? I think it's Nicodemus's effort to kind of get in their conversation uh, what is right, but he's not really willing to make it happen. So what is their response? They say in verse 52, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. Again, they're starting with the wrong information. They think that the origin story of Jesus is Galilee. It's not. We know the origin story of Jesus is Bethlehem to Egypt, then to Galilee. They don't have the right information, and they're using their misinformation to come to a conclusion and say, Nicodemus, you're an idiot. Don't tell us we can't judge this guy. He's claiming to be a prophet, at, at least claiming to be a prophet, if not outrightly claiming to be God. Look in the Old Testament. Does a prophet or God himself ever come out of Galilee? No. So don't give us this, we can't judge him because he's not here kind of thing. Nicodemus does not respond. They disperse. Now what else can they do? The officers aren't willing to arrest them. Now let's back up because we missed some verses of things that Christ said. So let's go back here in chapter 7 and verse 38. Yet a little while am I with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. Ye shall seek me and not find me, and where I am, and thither ye cannot come. This is not the first time, it's not the last time that Christ will foretell of his death. And yet the apostles are shocked when it happens. You say, well, can you really blame him? I mean, kind of ambiguous here. He's not really shooting straight from the hip. He's not really clear on what he's stating. I actually agree. This is a little unclear. But he gets a whole lot clearer as he gets closer to his death. Where he outrightly says, and when he says to the apostles, you can't go where I'm going. And the apostles say, what do you mean we can't go where you're going? And they do understand because that's when Peter says, no, 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 no. You're not going to die. They knew at that point what he was saying. And then Christ said, get behind me, Satan. So he kind of is starting now with some ambiguity of, I'm not going to be here forever. And yet the apostles are still shocked when he dies. Did they hear? Yes. Did they understand? Eventually. Did they believe? Obviously not. Which again is a problem. Problem with humanity. Just because we heard and just because we understand it does not mean we believe. Do you actually believe what the word of God says? about how he sees us, who we are to him. Do you believe what the word of God says about the future? It's in his hands. The world can cause whatever chaos it wants. In the end, we know how, who, how, who holds the victorious crown. We know this. You understand this. Do you believe this? I think too many Christians don't either fully understand or don't fully believe how that's going to look. Because their anxiety levels are way too high to match 
the belief that God wins in the end. Verse 37. In that last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Verse 39 tells us he's alluding to the Holy Ghost, which would be given to them. And verse 40, the people say when they heard saying, of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, the Messiah. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Again, that Galilee thing. Wrong information. Hath not the scripture said that Christ coming out of the seed of David and out of the town of what? Bethlehem. So look at that. They actually, some of them at least, know where the Messiah is from and just didn't make the effort to confirm if this was the truth for Christ or not. All right. Let's move on now. We're going to quickly look at our next uh, slide, and that's going to be Jesus dealing with the adult, uh, uh, adulterous woman. So in John chapter 8, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and uh, we're told early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. So this is around the same time, of course. The festival is now to end. It was the last feast already happened, so people are starting to head home. The crowds are dissipating a little bit, but there's still a lot of people there, maybe seeing family, look, checking out the town. There's still a, a big crowd. And so the Pharisees maybe are a little more emboldened because some, the crowds have dispersed. It's not so chaotic. You know, there's been a day or two since the, the peak of Christ speaking and, and the people saying, wow, look, he's right here and he's amazing. And so that's kind of died down. And so what do they do? We're told in verse 3, scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they sat in the midst, they said unto him, master, which is interesting, master, teacher, publicly they honor him. And yet, when he's not around, they say, let's kill him. You know, how could the crowd be so fooled as to see this hypocrisy? And see, literally, they treat him one way in his face and another way behind his back, and it does not bother them. I don't know. They said this woman was taking adultery the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that we should be, she should be stoned. What do you say? Right, I'm not going to go too in-depth. You know the premise here. You know the background. Uh, the Old Testament law, if, if someone was caught in adultery, they were to be killed. That is definitely true. You know what's interesting? Both, man and woman, were to be killed. Not just the woman. Where's the guy? If she was caught in the act, the guy was there, right? They were both there if she's caught in the act, not after the act. They make that very clear. They let the guy go. Why? Why would they let the guy go? Hmm. What is their goal? Is their goal to actually do what's right? Is their goal to fulfill the law, to see justice done? No, their goal is to trip up Christ. Now, if their goal is to trip up Christ, and if Christ said, stone her, would some of the crowd think, man, that's really harsh. Yes. If Christ said, stone him, do you think some of the crowd would say, that's really harsh? Maybe. Probably not as much. I mean, seeing a woman stoned surely is harder than seeing a guy stoned, right? And I think even back then, a lot of humanity would say, look, if the guy's involved, like, he should have known better. But like, if the woman's involved, someone could have thought, well, was she forced, right? Some women in the crowd, wow, that's really harsh. Maybe she was forced. Maybe she didn't want to be, right? But it was the guy. I think the Pharisee thought, is it really to the best of our advantage to bring a man there? Because if he says stone him, that may not actually accomplish what we want. Now, I'm making assumptions. I can't know for sure. The Pharisees don't tell us their plan, and God's word and inspiration doesn't give us their plan. But knowing human nature, that's the conclusion I come to. It didn't fit their plan to have a man there. Now, could it be they knew the guy or let him out the hook? Obviously, that's, that's a possibility. Could it be they set this whole thing up? 
and they had a man seduce this woman, and then said, all right, get out of here, and they get the woman. That is obviously also a possibility. Nothing can, nothing can, can uh, in my opinion, be too far gone for these guys, right, or so low for these guys. These are possibilities. I still think it's more so they didn't set it up, they didn't plan it, they heard about it and thought, perfect opportunity, but a man would gum up the works and confuse the issue. <laughs> so let's let the guy go and just bring the woman. Because she's going to bring the wet works, right? If she gets killed in front of everyone, there will most definitely be people that will be very upset with Christ. But then if he lets her go, some will say, at least he's just a big softy. He doesn't really care about the law. All right, so that's what's going on. I think most of you kind of already had figured that much out. So you know the rest of the story. They throw her on the ground. Jesus begins riding on the ground with his fingers in the dirt. We don't know what he said. Uh, some claim that he was riding the sins of the people in the dirt. Uh, some claim he was writing scripture in the dirt. Some claim he was just writing the names of people themselves in the dirt. Maybe names of people who themselves had committed adultery and got away with it. Wouldn't that be a little awkward? Whatever he was writing, it definitely bothered them. And people began to walk away. You know what's really interesting? The Bible makes a point to tell us the oldest walked away first. Now, I think that is a point that's not preached on nearly as much as the other parts of this text. The oldest walked away first. Why? Well, you would like to believe that those who are older are a little wiser. Those who are older come to their senses sooner than those who are younger. Those who are older and have experienced life can and should be more merciful than those who are young and think that Life should be a certain way. Only after they've lived it do they realize it's not what I thought. I can say in my own experience, how I spoke about truth when I was young. I look back at some of my messages. I, I keep them digital in my laptop. I can't even preach them. It's not that the truth wasn't there. The truth was there. But the way in which it's presented, I couldn't do it today. I just couldn't. I've lived too long now. To preach those messages, which were true. I didn't, I did not twist scripture, but I sure presented them harshly. And my age has opened my eyes to reality that life is not as easy, or success is not as easily attained as I thought it could and should be in my 20s. I remember a pastor once asking a question to other pastors. And he said, why is it that young men, and if, I'm assuming, it was it was in that Facebook group I tell you guys often of, right? I really love that group. It just opens my eyes to so much going on in the world. And so he's, and this young, I'm assuming young pastor says, why is it that young pastors aren't encouraged or allowed to write books? And if they do, like, no one reads them. And some guy said, well, brother, you write it anyway. So just do what you think is right. You write it, and you know... Whatever people do, that's up to them. You do the right thing. And mostly young guys said that. <laughs> and then some of the older pastors chimed in and said, well, brother, you don't have a lot of experience to, to attach to that book. <laughs> so most older Christians aren't too interested in what someone in their young 20s has to say about life before they've actually lived it. And I thought, well said. That, I'd have to say it because that's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> One person, one pastor actually went far and said, I actually recommend you don't ever even think about writing a book until you're in your 30s. Like, don't even bother in your 20s. Because 
because how many people say, write, put down something in their 20s, only to in their 30s backtrack and say, that actually could have been said different or better altogether? I think a lot, and I'm one of them. So I'm so glad I didn't get anything published in my 20s. That'd be embarrassing. And I think that's a real a big reason why the, the older are walking away. They've experienced life. They know what it's like. They know it's not as clear, cut and dry, black and white, as some claim. And yet, is that statement always true? Do all elderly Christians or middle-aged Christians have such a balanced view of life? No, that's not true, is it? Some are very zealous. Some are more extreme than those in their 20s. Here's what I believe. I don't believe that's natural. I believe what is natural is for you as to gain life experience to be more merciful, more forgiving, because you've realized life is hard. I think it is unnatural for you to become more harsh as you get older. Which means, if that's the case, in my opinion, that has been forced on you. Teaching, philosophy, tradition, bad experiences, misinformation has been forced on you to create in you an unnatural view as middle-aged, what should be older and wiser person, to be unwise, unmerciful in your experienced life, like someone who's in their young 20s. So, if you find yourself in that position, ask yourself why. What has happened in your life? What has been told you in your life? that as you're getting older, you're becoming more harsh in your opinion rather than more balanced. Judge righteous judgment. Don't be so extreme. Balance. Balance. Even Christ had balance. It's, it's, it's an interesting. That's, the very, that's one of the very things the Pharisees accused him of. How dare you eat with sinners? How balanced of you? Why are you not an extremist like us? And Christ says, oh, whoa, whoa. So... John the Baptist comes along, he is pretty extreme in his views, and you attack him. I come along, I'm more balanced, and you attack me. Look, there's no pleasing you guys. I'm not going to do anything to please you. I'm just stating you can't be pleased. Christ was extremely balanced. I think in his humor. I think in his relationships. He had a balanced approach to how he treated people. Peter was not all good. It was not all bad. Sometimes he put Peter in his place. Sometimes he lifted him up. It wasn't favoritism like Peter could do no wrong. He was balanced. I look at how Christ treated the Pharisees. Balanced. There was times he called them out. Sometimes he just plainly ignored them. Balance. Well, they walk away. The youngest, whether through guilt or whether they looked around and said, well, I'm the only one left and I'm not going to stone this woman by myself. And they left. They're all gone. And then Jesus looks at this woman and says, woman, in verse 10, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, no man, Lord. Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Now, I actually spoke in this recently um, to a group of people, and I don't know if you guys were here when I said this, but there was, it might have been in one of my Bible classes, there was a, a woman a long time ago, not in this church, I was in a different church, and we were having to go through church discipline. She was living in open sin, and unrepentant open sin, did not want to address it, did not want to deal with it properly. So the church was following the word of God and saying, well, you remember, you can no longer be a member if you're going to live in open, public, immoral sin. And so her membership was going to be rescinded. And so the vote was being held at a business meeting. She shows up at the business meeting, not to defend herself, but just to be there. And then when the time came for an open forum, she was still a member at that time. She just stood up, 
and she read this verse, and then she sat down. That's all she did. Let me tell you again what she read. She said, no man, Lord, and Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn thee, and she sat down. Now, pastor, I was not the pastor. Again, it wasn't here. The pastor at that time said, okay, thank you, and then he held the vote, and <laughs> she, her membership was lost. As a young man, I was thinking, wait a second, there's more to that verse. Like, why isn't the pastor reading the rest of it or addressing it? Look, again, I was like all reactionary, right? At that age, I would have stood up and said, well, let me read the rest of that verse for you. That's what I would have done at that age. I was like 25. Him, in his wisdom, he must have thought, there's no good way out of this. Like, we're just going to hold the vote, move on. I'm not going to turn it into a spectacle. I can see that now. I didn't understand it then. He probably made the better choice. But there obviously is more to this verse, right? And what is the rest of that verse? Go and sin no more. She didn't read that part. She only read the part that made her look good. She only read the part that made us look bad. And she was using scripture, parts of it, to attack those who dare call her out on sin. And if you don't know scripture, that's easily done. People actually use the Bible to attack your own belief system, and you don't know it well enough to understand they're taking it out of context or adding something that doesn't even belong. So go and sin no more. Does God forgive? Yes, every time, all the time. 1 John 1, 9, right? He will forgive you. Great verse, by the way, 1 John 1, 9. You should read it sometime. Great verse. Gives us the promise of God's forgiveness every time we ask for it. But that doesn't mean that we have the freedom to sin whenever we want. Paul actually uses the phrase, God forbid. God forbid that should be the case. That just because God offers never-ending grace doesn't mean I have the right for never-ending sin. God forbid that I should take advantage of God's never-ending daily mercy. And those who live in sin want to lift up God's mercy but ignore God's holiness. And then those who live in self-righteousness want to live up, lift up God's holiness and ignore his mercy. Those who follow and love Christ will recognize mercy and truth. Bring a good testimony in the sight of both God and man, as the book of Proverbs says. It's a balance of both. Stop lifting up one and ignoring the other. And don't let anyone else do the same to you. Thank you for joining us tonight. We'll see you next Wednesday as we continue our series on the life of